0: Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today, as we celebrate Labour Day, we'll hear about the labour history of Latinos in Colorado. When you think about the
1: contributions to the coal mining industry in southern Colorado and also Boulder County, you see that impact.
0: The history of steel workers
2: in Pueblo. You know, by December, the two unions offered to come back to work, and the company said, no, we've replaced you with scams.
0: A new podcast that brings us the story of veterans, including the story of one former dog handler in the Army who had to say goodbye to his beloved companion. When he returned home and
3: it really hit me then like i'm never going to see this dog again like my only teammate the whole time like i'm never going to see this dog again like this is it
0: and a silent movie festival brings crowds to estes park colorado
4: you think about it, there's no dialogue so all they've got is their actions their facial expressions the looks you know and the music behind it that's really all you have to to portray the mood or the scene
0: from rocky mountain community radio it's the regional roundup With the Labour Day holiday here, we look next to the history of labour in the Rocky Mountains and we'll begin by revisiting an interview with Dr. Nikki Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez is a Professor of History and Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Regis University in Denver. She's a member of History Colorado's State Historians Council and in July 2020, she was named by Governor Jared Polis To the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board. Her families have deep roots in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico and she specializes in the history of the American West with a focus on race relations and social and political movements. She spoke with KVNF's Laura Palmisano in 2022 about the history of Latinos in the labor movement in Colorado.
1: The Latino communities have shaped Colorado in really important ways with their labor. When you think about the contributions to the coal mining industry in southern Colorado and also Boulder County, you see that impact. You also see it in the agricultural fields of southern and central and northern Colorado, in places like the potato fields in the San Luis Valley and the sugar beet fields in northern Weld County and Larimer counties. So, through their physical labor, um, as well as places like meat packing houses outside of Denver and railroad work, so those really heavy industries that really shaped. The landscape of Colorado shaped the economy and shaped race relations in Colorado as well. And labor relations, because there's a large number of Latinos who have served in labor organizing roles and notably in the meatpacking industry here in Denver, where my own grandfather was very a very active union member. So in those heavy industries, as well as opening businesses, whether they be restaurants or barbershops or print shops, you know, often the types of businesses where you don't need a lot of financing and you don't need a lot of education. And because In a society that often treated Latinos as second-class citizens or denied them access to education and to financing, those were industries that they were able to, to enter and be very successful in.
5: On the topic of race relations, what are some notable moments in Colorado history for Latinos?
1: So when we talk about the question of race in Colorado, we're talking about structural racism, we're talking about interpersonal racism, we're talking about exclusion from certain like, sources of financing, we're talking about housing segregation, unequal access to education, and so... I would say that Colorado, because it was such a hotbed of Chicano activism, is a really interesting state to look at in terms of how the Latino or or the Chicano community responded to those inequities. When you say that the Chicano movement in Colorado, you're not talking just Denver and you're not talking just the crusade for justice, which is what most people think of, but you're talking about multiple organizations multiple individuals you're talking about women and men activists who were marching in the streets who were working behind the scenes who were challenging the structural racism of the day and promoting equity and in terms of education and job access and housing and, uh, you know, and against police brutality, state brutality against the Latino people. And you're talking about the land rights movement in southern Colorado, the strikes on the eastern plains and in Weld County against um, employers who, who were being exploited toward their predominantly Latino workforces. So I would say that that's something that sets Colorado apart from other states is the prevalence of the activism in the 60s and 70s which was a response to the racism, the racist past of Colorado.
5: Who are some notable historic figures for the Colorado Latino community?
1: There are so many notable figures. I think you could look at like leaders like Shirley Romero Otero from San Luis, who helped lead the land rights struggle in southern Colorado. You could look at Apolina Rael, who was one of her co-activists in the San Luis Valley. You could also look at people like Ricardo Falcone, who became a martyr for the Chicano movement when he was killed in 1972 because of his activism in politics, in the area of politics. And then people, of course, who are maybe a little bit more well-known because of their position, like Federico Pena, who would become the first Hispanic or Latino Mexican-American mayor of Denver.
5: You have a personal connection to Colorado. You are a Denver native, and you have a familial connection. Please discuss that with our listeners.
1: Yes, I am a Denver native, born and raised in, in the Denver area. And my family has very deep roots in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. So I can go back, really back to my great grandparents, who were coal miners. They were also agricultural workers in the fields of northern Colorado. You know, they never owned land until, you know, they moved to Denver during the war years. But they were able to. Or they shaped Colorado history in, in ways that I've already discussed. And so, yes, I have very deep roots in Colorado, and I really have a deep love for this state.
5: How did your familial connection to Colorado shape your career choice?
1: That's a great question. So I think I'm somebody, and I don't know too many people like me in academia, but my familial connection and the questions I have around that, especially having grown up in a situation where I wasn't always taught my history and it was kind of a mystery to me. So I would say that my desire to know more about my family has really driven so much of my, my research agenda and certainly my career choice.
5: Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gonzalez.
1: Laura, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out.
0: Dr. González is a Professor of History and Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Regis University, and she's a member of History Colorado's State Historians Council. She was speaking with KVNF's Laura Pomisano. Well, Latinos and Chicanos played a huge role in the steel industry in Pueblo, Colorado, an exhibit at History Colorado's El Pueblo History Museum, chronicles the historic steelworkers' strike that began in the early 1980s. Over more than two decades, steelworkers and their families fought for labour rights, while the wider community came together to support them. Zach Workowicz is the lead developer on the exhibit Steel City 1980-2004. And he says that the early 1980s, That was a time of tremendous change for the steel industry with massive layoffs at the Pueblo Steel Mill, which was the city's largest employer. He spoke with KGNU's Robert Lindgren on the show The Labour Exchange.
6: With those dates, the 1980 to 2004, what are some of the key events uh, covered, the history covered by the exhibit?
2: The reason we looked at that era in in the late 70s, in like 1979, there were somewhere around 8000 people working at the mill. And at that time, um, they were still making steel from coal and iron, smelting it here, rolling out tubes and bars and rails, as well as the newer process in electric arc furnace where basically like melting down scrap steel to make your products. So 1980, 8,000 people or so working there. But what was happening in the rest of the world is that Western Europe and Japan, their steel industries were destroyed during World War II. And they were built back uh, with much more modern methods. And CFNI was not as bad as some of the other players in back East, but basically like the foreign steel was dumped into the domestic market and caused massive disruption to the steel industry. Between 1980 and 1984, the plant went from seven or 8,000 people to about 900 or 1,000 people working there. So. By the mid-80s, the plant here was employing a fraction of what it had been employing five, five years or 10 years earlier, but it limped along. There, were, there was trouble with the pension. There, it was spun off from the Crane Corporation, which had owned it previously. It was sort of made to go independent, but it was limping along. By the early 90s, in the fall of 1991, CF and I had declared bankruptcy which was a terrifying prospect here, even though the mill employed a fraction of what of the people that had been working there, those were still like union jobs, good wages and benefits and pensions. Uh, and, and aside from the wages alone, the pensioners um, really significant portion of the population in Southern Colorado. So the company declared bankruptcy, but luckily through community efforts and, and, Concessions from the workforce eventually. Like it was uh, bought by Oregon Steel, headquartered in Portland. They had other steel mills along the West Coast. And the workforce, the the, the two unions there signed a five-year contract with Oregon Steel to keep the mill running. What was certainly known at the time, but not talked about in the, the newspaper for sure, was Oregon Steel's record of breaking its unions. They broke unions in, I think in Portland and Napa in the 1980s. And they came when that five-year contract was up, they came, that was their plan here was to break the union here in Pueblo. But the steelworkers here in the community, like were not going to let that happen. They voted to go on strike in in October of 97. And then, you know, with some flurry of back and forth and some intricacies of some esoteric labor law, like moved from a, a strike to, but basically they were on strike for seven years after that.
6: For our listeners, it's, it's fairly complicated because, uh, there's arguments between the company and the union over whether this is an economic or non-economic strike. There's also, uh, even more complexity than that, but the basic, uh, uh underlying thing is that, is that, uh, you know, reactions through the courts or other means, um, you know, moved what was happening because of the the way the legal system works around labor. It's incredibly complicated. I think it'll be a little too hard for me to even you know come off and summarize this on a side sidebar. Um,
2: well, but the sort of gist is that you know by December the two unions offered to come back to work, and the company said no. We've replaced you with scams. Uh, and and that's where the whole decision hinged. Is and that's what you mean—is like, is it an economic strike or a working conditions or unfair labor practice strike? But the workforce here carried on for seven years, and that meant picket lines at the at the gates. It meant rallying support from neighbors and businesses around the community, and also really significantly, steelworkers led really a, a new phase in not just grassroots unionism but grassroots um, organizing nationwide. Steelworkers from Pueblo, um, Joel Buchanan is one, they ended up going all over the country, eventually targeting not just Oregon Steel, but Wells Fargo, just like the company credit card, to put economic pressure on the company through numerous conversations and presentations at meetings and all sorts of grassroots tactics. Got other union allies, universities, municipalities to withdraw tens of billions, I think $14 billion or something from Wells Fargo as economic sanctions against against Oregon Steel. Eventually, uh, you know, there's a lot more to say about all of that, but in 2004, the company came back to the table. There's a court order, uh, again, like kind of esoteric uh, court maneuverings and legal maneuverings. Um, but the steelworkers here won the biggest back pay in labor history that
6: time. Our guest today is Zach Workwich, Community Relations Director for History Colorado. We've been discussing an exhibit at the El Pueblo Museum in Pueblo, Colorado called Steel City
0: 1980 to 2004. That was an excerpt of KGNU's Labour Exchange hosted by Robert Lindgren. You can find out more about the exhibit Steel City 1980 to 2004 at historycolorado.org. You're listening to The Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. A new podcast produced by KSJD in Cortez, Colorado captures and shares veterans' experiences and those of their families. I spoke with Eric Kiros the host and producer of The Warrior Narratives.
7: I'm a veteran myself, and just being able to share and showcase veterans' stories is really important to me because I think not a lot of people really have an understanding of what the lived experience of veterans really is. We have an idea through movies, through television shows, but it's kind of rare to actually sit down with a veteran and actually find out what their lived experiences are.
0: Well, let's talk about the vet that you uh, interview and speak to in the first episode. And this is Jess, who grew up in Cortez and just served four years in Afghanistan. And Jess shares the story of coming home and how difficult that transition was. But it was underscored by the fact that Jess had served as a dog handler and had gotten a very close relationship with this dog and when he gets back to the u.s he had to say goodbye to his dog
3: and they're like hey you get like five ten minutes to say goodbye and that's it and it really hit me then like i'm never gonna see this dog again like my only teammate the whole time like i'm never gonna see this dog again like this is it this is this is it like bye kind of thing i was his first dog handler i was like Was his first deployment, you know, and you start thinking about everything and how like in tune you got with the dog, and it was just nuts, man. And I, I wish I could redo that over again. I really do. I wish because that dog had no idea we were leaving him. You know, that dog had no idea. Yeah, he. I was there one second, then gone
0: the next. And that was such an emotional part of Jess's story when I was listening to that
3: losing that dog. Like it was, it was like losing. It was like losing your buddy. Like, it was like losing a teammate. I remember waking up one night at my parents and back here in Cortez. And I, like, I was like, where's, where's Nero? Where's, where's the dog? And I, I was hungover. But yeah, like, it was just, it was too much. And I couldn't, I didn't think the detachment from, he's an animal, you know. It's like, I, I didn't realize the detachment would be that significant from an animal, you know, to, to where I felt. Some guys talk about, like, I don't feel safe without a a weapon or whatever when they come back. I didn't feel okay. I felt anxiety. Like, I felt anxious without him.
0: These are aspects of a veteran's experience that you don't even realize. Tell us a little bit more about Jess.
7: So Jess is an Afghan war veteran. um, And he got put into a situation where, as often happens within the military, situation where he was a dog handler and he wasn't expecting to be one he was just told to be and so he didn't really expect to have that kind of closeness and that relationship with this dog that he had until the dog was gone and it was such a heart-wrenching story that Jess told about that and it was really an incredibly emotional moment for him and at the moment I don't think he even realized that it was happening.
0: Another part of Jesse's story that I found really interesting was the fact that he's of Native American heritage he described himself as being half Hopi and he had two older brothers who'd also enrolled in the army and he remembers an uncle performing a very significant ceremony just before his his brothers enlisted
3: you know there's a ceremony in the with the Hopi people about a warrior and they use a eagle feather I think and it I don't know all the details of it, but he, he performed the ceremony for my brothers. And I just remember being like, my, like everything changed then, you know, it was, they're, not, they're not young men, they're warriors now and they're going off to war. And so it was really understood amongst my family and like my, with my uncle Rat who was there, you know, and him being a tribal elder on the reservation and up on that, up in the village, like it was a big deal him to do that and I remember just the significance and like the weight of everybody watching this go on.
0: That was such a powerful story as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
7: Yeah it was a really personal story and something that I wasn't really sure would come up within the conversation because on in private we've had conversations about his Native American being half Hopi and rituals but For him to bring that up in the podcast was extremely powerful. And honestly, it really surprised me that he did bring that up. And it was, again, it was really powerful in the way he described the whole ceremony and the meaning behind it.
3: And that's what I remember. And it was just very, I was like, whoa, this is like old time. Like, this is, quote unquote, the old way, if you want to call it that. And it was pretty cool. It was cool to see.
0: You said, Eric... You yourself are a vet, and I think having you as a vet speaking in that context to other folks brings another level of understanding.
7: So I think that really helps as being kind of a guide in the podcast in to facilitate the storytelling. I understand the language, I understand the lingo, and I'm kind of the bridge between the storyteller and the audience. So if something comes up, like one of the things that came up in that episode is the term M.O.S., and MOS stands for is a military job um, in the military. So we, I tried to slow him down and explain it um, just to be that bridge gap between the storyteller and the audience.
0: Well, to that end, I mean, who are you hoping the audience will be for this series? Because it's very compelling, I would imagine, for fellow veterans to hear two people who have that same shared experience, have this conversation. But for other folks who have really no connection at all, except for maybe what they see on the news or what they see through popular culture, it's a very different experience. So who are you hoping will be the audience for the podcast?
7: My hope is the audience is somebody that has little to no understanding of veteran culture and what it is to be a veteran. So it's trying to gain a greater understanding for the general public to go beyond the television shows, go beyond the movies and see that, you know, being a veteran is just a, being a person and having an experience and doing a job. It's more than just, I think the general public doesn't really pay attention to veterans unless it's Memorial Day, you know, 4th of July, maybe Veterans Day. And other than that, it's, they're kind of just in the shadows. And I want to let people understand that, it's, a, you know, veterans are approachable. They're not, you know, they're not this monolith. They have different backgrounds, bit, different stories, different cultural perspectives. Um, and just trying to gain a better understanding for the general public on that demographic is what the intent is.
0: Just as you're saying that, it also struck me that so often veterans are portrayed either in news reporting or popular culture The veterans' experience is mired in trauma, that that's the story we hear. We don't hear the full breadth and the diversity of so many veterans' experiences.
7: Yeah, so we are not tracing or chasing trauma. What the intent is, is just to still get storytelling from people. We don't go just for combat veterans. Being in the military is a unique experience. And so being able to share that experience with other people is Profound, But it there's certain things that happen from different echelons of the military, from the highest, you know, special operations going all the way down to, you know, the basic regular army or whatever. There's a story to be told there. And that's really what we're focusing on.
0: And as we have mentioned several times, Eric, you yourself are a veteran. Has this been impactful for you being part of this process? As you said, you're a guide for the listener. You're that bridge between veterans and maybe non-military folks. But what has that whole process and this entire project meant for you?
7: It's honestly been an honor to do this. I mean, some of the interviews that I've done. I've gotten hugs afterwards. Um, just be, just because people have said they haven't talked about certain issues ever with anybody. Um, somebody told me that they've never talked about these issues even with their spouse. And it's been you can tell after these interviews that a weight is kind of lifted off of individuals' shoulders. We don't as veterans, we don't really get a chance unless we're in a room with other veterans to talk about our experiences in a way that we can have understanding. And I think it's borderline therapeutic for people to come in and just talk about their experience in a safe and comfortable environment.
0: Well, people can find the Warrior Narratives podcast online at ksjd.org or warriornarratives.org. Eric, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us.
7: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Eric Kiros is the host and producer of The Warrior Narratives. You can find it at ksjd.org. To round out today's show, we pay a visit to Estes Park, the gateway to the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Over the Labour Day weekend, it hosted its annual silent comedy movie festival that featured films that are nearly 100 years old, all accompanied by live piano playing.
4: I'm Scott Wilson, and I'm the piano player. I, I watch the movies before we play them in the theater, and I look for certain scenes just suggest certain songs. Guy taking his boat out and anchors away, he played during that, he brings the boat to the, to the docks, I'm playing by the sea. There are things like that, and then there's, there's moods that you try. sounding you know there's almost always a chase scene so I pick out my songs that I can play probably as fast as anything you know and you try to keep getting faster and faster as the song goes on. the scenes go from, a lot of times they go from uh, sad to happy, something happens. There's a scene in one movie where a uh, newlywed, she makes the rolls, and boy, these rolls are like boulders. They're just, if you ate them, you'd break your teeth. So, of course, you play playing some of the minor key. Well, then the guy figures out how to, you know, that he can eat these okay. She's crying. Well, then it turns to major key again, because you turn, you, you do something like, then you transition to, so it sound you know, it's a happy, it's a happy time now. The more I watch these, the more subtleties I pick up in them. And you think about it, there's no dialogue, so all they've got is their actions, their facial expressions, the looks, you know, and the music behind it. That's really all you have to, to portray the mood or the scene.
0: Silent Movies are making a resurgence in the Rocky Mountains. Denver will host its own Silent Film Festival later this month. And Utah's fifth annual Silent Film Festival begins September 15th. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one Thanks to Robert Lingren, host of KGNU's Labour Exchange, Laura Pomisano host of Local Motion at KVNF and Eric Kiros, host of the Warrior Narratives podcast at KSJD. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.